one piece of trivia you often see about the Iroquois Confederacy is that it had some influence on the U.S. Constitution. I don't believe this to be true, and many scholars don't. The Iroquois Confederacy is incredibly unique. It's very interesting, and it's all important by itself. We don't need to link it to something else in order to, for it to be interesting and important. Now, the U.S. Constitution is just a completely different thing. And I think by the end of the episode, you'll go, wow, this is a very different system than the one I've learned about in school. The one piece of evidence often given is a quote by Benjamin Franklin from, I believe, the 1750s, where he's talking about his plan. He called it the Albany Plan of Union, where he wanted to unite the English colonies with the Iroquois Confederacy and have one mutual defense pact, basically. And he scolds the colonies for not being as united as these savage natives. And it was kind of an insulting, definitely a prejudicial comment that has often been spun to appear to be the opposite. But in context, he's actually saying, hey, look, these natives can unite. Why can't we? On the opposite side of things, there are people who insist the Iroquois Confederacy only came around after contact with Europeans or after the conditions that Europeans put into place were trickling down into the middle of what is now New York State, causing them to form this confederacy. So we have people saying that Native Americans influenced the U.S. Constitution. Then we have other people saying, well, it was the Europeans who originally influenced the Native Americans to unify in this kind of confederacy. By the end of this podcast, I hope you find that both systems are incredibly unique, both are important and very interesting, and they probably have no relation to one another, and that's fine. So I will be contending, like many others do, that the Iroquois Confederacy was its own thing. It was not influenced by Europeans. It was a native creation, and it stands to this day. Likewise, the U.S. Constitution has no native influence that I can see in it. And if you break down the U.S. Constitution, you could see the English influence, the Greek, the Roman. You can even see Dutch and Swiss and just Enlightenment-era influences. There's no leftover pieces that could be explained by Native American confederacies. And that's okay, because like I said, we don't need the U.S. Constitution for the Iroquois Confederacy to be important. It's important just because it exists and its history and all the things it accomplished on its own. All right, so the first idea I want to tackle in constructing the Iroquois Confederacy is the idea of a sachem. What is a sachem? So often the word sachem is interpreted as chief. Chief can be a number of different things. A sachem is a very specific thing and a very powerful thing. There are only 50 sachems in the Iroquois Confederacy, I believe to this day. They're hereditary, and you adopt the name of the original possessor of that sachem. So if you remember in our first episode and we learned about the evil Onondaga chief with the snakes in the hair, he's still around. There's someone who has that title, has his name today. So in addition to assuming the role of a sachem, and the previous duties of that sachem, you assume their identity in a sense. You get their name. Of the 50 sachem ships, the record I found was that 9 are Mohawk, 9 are Oneida, 14 Onondaga, 10 Cayuga, and 8 are Seneca. This is the best record I could find. This is at least the original distribution of the sachems. Each sachem is equal to every other sachem. They have equal say. Uh, the roles might be different, and when we get to customs, things might be different depending on where you are, which clan you're from, and so on and so forth. But in theory, they are all equal. When the sachem dies, the clan that the sachem belonged to, the women in that clan, because the clans are run by the women, get to decide who the new sachem will be. And the sachem is always male. 
as we said in a previous episode, the Sachem's son could not inherit the Sachemship because he belonged to a different clan. Clans are linked through the female. And so the clan women would discuss and they would pick somebody based on merit, not necessarily close relation. So it could often be the dead Sachem's brother or nephew through his sister, one of his sisters. But it didn't necessarily have to be. It just needed to be a man from the clan who, you know, showed the right abilities to be a Sachem. So even when it was a close family member, it didn't have to be the elder or the older brother. There was no necessary requirement for seniority. If the older brother wasn't as qualified as the younger brother, the younger brother would have a better chance of inheriting that that sachemship. Once nominated and approved by the clan, it would move on to the tribe level. Where are you approved by the tribe? Because you represent your clan, but you will be also representing your tribe. And then it moves up to the council, the confederate council. And so the other sachems could remove a sachem. At least that's the leading theory on how it would have functioned right before the Europeans showed up. So of the 50 sachems, you could make it all the way to the top and they could go, nah, we don't want you. And in fact, your clan could recall you if you did something that was not becoming of a sachem. They could say, hey, you're done. You're not you're not representing us anymore. And then the nomination process would start up all over again. Some people would describe this system as a democracy and then others describe it as an oligarchy. And there's a healthy debate going back and forth between scholars of what's the exact nature of the Iroquois Confederacy. Is, is it a democracy or is it something a little more controlled by an elite class or a select group at least? Now, this kind of underscores the point I made a couple minutes ago where you can't use European terms to classify what the Iroquois Confederacy is. They are completely separate worlds. And as you can see already, there isn't a lot of European influence on the idea of sachemships. It just, it isn't there. You won't find anything in Europe at this time that resembles sachemships or a lot of the other stuff we're going to talk about unless you go back a thousand years. So there's a significant gap of time. And no, Europeans did not influence the design of this confederacy. The flip side of that, of course, is that this confederacy really didn't influence the actual design of a lot of European governments that we would see in North America coming up. So just to finish up our discussion on sachems, if a sachem was in another sachem's land, they'd be accorded all the respect of the sachem who was in that district or who was part of that tribe, part of that clan in that area. So the sachems were truly equal. And sachems were not war chiefs. In fact, if a sachem wanted to go to war, be part of a war party, they had to lay down their sachemship for the time that they were gone. They are chiefs of peace. That was their original intention. That was the intention of the Iroquois Confederacy, as we've talked about before. Also, war is deadly. Could you imagine sachems leading war bands? There would be far more casualties than during any other time, and there was a very real risk the entire confederacy could fall apart. There's only 50 of these guys, and there's a process and ceremony involved in replacing them. You can't have your sachem in harm's way. Let's talk about the wider tribes now. We've talked about clans. We've talked about sachems. Now, these tribes in the Confederacy, they were truly nations. We call them the Five Nations and then the Six Nations. They truly were nations onto themselves. The Confederacy did not reach inside of those nations and control them as much as you might think. So the, the Council of Fifty Sachems, they would make decisions mostly on foreign relations. We're in charge of what's going on outside of our nations. But inside of their nations, the tribe truly was in charge. So if you were an Onondaga and you went into a Seneca village... Well, that's the Seneca village. They're in charge. That's their nation. You are visiting their nation. And luckily for you, you're part of the Haudenosaunee, and you might have clan members there. Because remember, the clans intersect between the tribes. 
So you might have a bear clan member among the Mohawk and a bear clan member among the Seneca. Well, they are united. They are relatives. And so this helped keep the peace between these separate nations, these separate tribes. The fact that, yeah, I'm Seneca, you're Onondaga, but we're still part of the same clan. There's this intersection, these connections inside of connections. It's really interesting and it helped bind everyone together. Anthropologist Lewis H. Morgan once said that the clan system became a means of affecting the most perfect union of separate nations ever devised by the wit of man. But yes, each nation inside of the Haudenosaunee, they were their own state completely. Not like a U.S. state where the federal government has supremacy in most cases. They were an independent nation onto themselves completely in terms of their internal affairs, which is something no U.S. state can say. And this is accurate to how confederacies around the world and throughout time have worked. A confederacy is a bunch of independent states that are coming together for common goals, usually defense. But inside of themselves, there's still their own thing. And because within the tribe's territory, there was this independence from the League, there really was a lot of personal rights and a lot of individual rights. Lewis H. Morgan says, The government sat lightly upon the people who, in effect, were governed but little. It secured to each that individual independence, which the Haudenosaunee knew how to prize as well as the Saxon race. That, of course, being an outdated term for the English people. He goes on to say, it would be difficult to describe any political society which there was less of oppression and discontent and more of individual independence and boundless freedom. The spirit which prevailed in these nations and in the Confederacy was that of freedom. The people appear to have secured to themselves all the liberty which the hunter state of mind rendered desirable. As you can hear in these quotes, the Confederacy being an outward organization meant to control what was going on between the nations and the outside world, really left the inside alone in a lot of ways, and just left a lot of room open for freedom. There wasn't a Congress passing laws, making sure everybody within the Confederacy followed those laws, and an executive branch making sure those laws were followed and enacted and played out. This Confederacy was really an extension of the clan system, through the tribal system, through their common bond as being an Iroquoian people. And together they made the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse. It was both a metaphor and a geographic reality as they were strung out across what is now central and western New York State. The council could declare war and the council could declare peace, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But that didn't stop individual tribes from making similar arrangements. Again, they were nations. Back then there was a system of trails connecting the tribes. There was one main trail going from Albany to Buffalo. And this pretty much became the basis for the highway system in New York State. If you think about the um, western end of the New York State Thruway that goes from Albany to Buffalo, it's roughly the same path. So we could see that the Iroquois were already setting up the ways and patterns and modes of life that everybody else would be following with later on. Among the Iroquois were a class of young braves who were tasked with running. They were the runners who would send messages between the villages, within the tribe, between the tribes, and for the council. They could get a message from Buffalo to Albany in three days, it said. These runners could travel like war parties did and hunting parties, and they could use the stars in order to navigate at night. Certain meteor showers they would call the dancers up in the sky, and they'd always know where they would fall generally. Polaris was called the one that never moves because it's fixed in the sky over north. Venus was called the one that brings the day because Venus comes up right before the sun, usually. Then there was the Milky Way, which they called the Road of Souls. And the Big Dipper, of course, was the Great Bear. The Great Council of 50 Sachems would meet 
once a year, typically, unless there was some special matter at hand. A runner would be sent out with a string of wampum with a message in it to be sent to the different villages to gather this HM so that they knew ahead of time what the issues were going to be and when to meet. The council fire was always set among the Onondaga and inside of their tribal territory. The other tribes would have to travel there with their representatives. Once they were outside of the Onondaga camps, they would send in a messenger just to relay the message of, hey, you know, we're your friends. Here, here we are. Please let us in. This both acknowledged that the Onondaga were the sovereign owners of their land and territory, and it gave the Onondaga the chance to realize other people were around and they wouldn't get spooked by a sudden appearance of a large group of people, which, as you can imagine, would be quite frightening and could lead to some major misunderstandings. Even in our earliest sources, there seems to be different councils. So there was a religious council that was in charge of the ceremonies and the singing and the dancing. There was a mourning council that was in charge of consoling people who have lost loved ones, especially sachems, and the process of nominating a new sachem, approving that sachem. So there was a way of making sure and vetting that the people coming up were good representatives and at the same time consoling those who've lost somebody. And then there was the main council of 50, and those sachems would be in charge of all the business of the league. All of the sachems in the council would have a chance to speak on any issue eventually. There were orders as to how people were to talk and in what order they would were to talk. And they would use a uh, like a speaking stick, but it was a band of wampum. And whoever possessed the band of wampum, they would have the floor, and everyone should be listening to that person. It was a good way to keep order among 50 people. The councils were organized along lines of which tribes were senior and which tribes were junior. Although they were all considered equal, the Mohawks, the Onondaga, and the Seneca were considered the fathers. And to each other, they were brothers. Then on the other side of the council fire, you had the Oneidas and the Cayuga, and then eventually the Tuscarora, and they were considered the sons. And they themselves were considered brothers to each other. There are a lot of theories into how this happened. Perhaps the Sun tribes, other than the Tuscarora, because we know what happened there, were offshoots of the other tribes at some point. But there's really no definitive answer as to why some are brothers, some are sons, some are fathers. Now, this is where, if the Iroquois Confederacy is a democracy, it diverges greatly from a lot of American politics and how things work. Decisions had to be unanimous. So this is a big difference. Not only that, but it had to be through consensus. So what would happen is typically I've seen varying accounts on how it would have worked a long time ago and how it works now might be quite different. But a long time ago, typically the sachems of one tribe would have to come up with a consensus. They would all have to agree 100%. And then that decision would move to another tribe. Now, usually how it would organize is something like the Mohawks would have to agree on something and then the Senecas and then the Mohawks and the Senecas would meet together and they'd come up with a joint decision. And then that joint decision would move to the other side of the fire. And the same process would have been done on the other side with the Oneida and the Cayuga. And if combining, it's almost like a football bracket. And if you get to the end of that bracket and there isn't a consensus, you know, it goes back down, it goes back up. And if they can't come to an agreement or some combination of agreements, no decision is made. If a decision is not made by consensus, they do not make the decision. That decision would be either taken up later with better information or more time to think about it. But at that time, the council fire is put out. It's snuffed out. No decision has been made. This would allow the individual tribes, though, to make individual decisions. Let's say the matter was going to war or not. Well, the council couldn't come up and make a decision on what to do unanimously. But your tribe could decide on an individual level to go to war. So there's a lot of freedom for all the moving parts here. And they did not make decisions lightly, because if the council did make a decision, 
they stuck by it. They have a, I believe, unbroken record of honoring their treaties. And I'm sure somebody will challenge me on that. But if they did make a decision, unanimous, by consensus, everyone's on board, they stuck to it. And that's that's something to uh, respect. The Onondaga, as the host of the entire council, they're responsible for recording the decisions. And they would be read into wampum, as it was said. So a decision would be made, and then a wampum belt would be made to represent in a mnemonic device what that decision was. They would be keeping the wampum like a record, like a treaty or a deed or any sort of paperwork that you would keep, your birth certificate. And that was their role within the tribe, much like how the Mohawk are guarding the eastern door and the Seneca are guarding the western door. Each tribe had their individual roles. The Onondaga record keeper, just by the way, was not the spiritual descendant of the evil, horned, serpent-haired one. It was another Onondaga chief. And I think I'm going to pronounce... I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I'm going to say it anyway. Honawinato. Honawinato. That's the best I could do. I could barely speak English. One intention of the League was to eventually create peace among the world. If you joined the League, of course, you would be in a peaceful relationship with everybody else in the League. So to attain world peace, you have to get every other political entity to eventually join the League. Which, as we've seen, joining the League is similar to joining the United Nations, in that you're not going to lose your own sovereignty as a state. You're just going to be part of a greater union. Part of what the Iroquois tried to do is open trade relationships with all their neighbors. I think we talked about in a previous episode how if, typically in Native American culture in general, if you're not trading with a tribe... That's because there is some bad blood there. There's a bad relationship. If you're openly trading, it's opening up a relationship more than just the exchange of goods. You're saying, we're friends. We, we get along. We accept each other. We can help each other in times of need. So typically, if the Haudenosaunee wanted to open up peaceful relations, they would start with communications like that and trading and just the giving of goods to begin with. It's recorded that the Mohegan at some point claimed that they were good friends with the Mohawk. So before the Europeans showed up in the Hudson River Valley and created a rift between them, basically over the fur trade, it's thought that at times the Mohegan were actually on pretty peaceful terms with the Mohawk. And in fact, the archaeological sites sometimes aren't that far apart. And the Mohegan are actually pretty wide open. They're not fortified very much at all. So they obviously weren't that afraid of the Mohawk at many times. The Huron had a confederacy to the West, and they were also an Iroquoian people. And relations with the Huron always seemed strained. There just never seems to be a, a time of really good relations. There's some cool-down periods, but there always seems to be friction. And the Huron Confederacy, at least in the beginning, seems to have been bigger, had better relations. They were called the Granary of the Algonquins because they basically grew a lot of food to trade with the Algonquins, who are mostly hunters and gatherers. So before the Europeans showed up, the Five Nations seemed to have been beginning to expand, at least on the Mohawk end of things. The Seneca end of things are a little less documented, at least at this point. But among Iroquois people, how much of the League did it encompass? How much of the League represented how much of the Iroquois people, people who spoke Iroquois languages? Of course, the southern Iroquois peoples, the Cherokee, were nowhere near the League. They weren't part of it. But there were other Iroquois people all around, like the Huron we mentioned, which are a bunch of tribes. The Neutrals, that's what they were called. The Erie, the Allegheny, the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Jefferson County Iroquois, we don't even know what they called themselves. They're, we just know them from the records of archaeology. The Wenro, the Susquehannock. There were lots of other Iroquois people around. And so the figures that I found for before the Europeans showed up, what percentage of the Iroquois were actually part of this league, it looks to be uh, less than 50%. It was not the majority. 
I have two estimates here that I got, I believe, from uh, a book called Archaeology of the Iroquois. I could see it right here, but I can't quite read the title. It's up on my bookshelf. It's a educational publication. It printed up a bunch of different educational papers that were in different scholarly journals, blah, blah, blah. You could find it. Two estimates I found. One here, Iroquois population circa 1609 estimates that they were around the numbers of 25,000, 17,000, or 12,000. So this one source provides three different estimates. So the people in the actual Iroquois Confederacy, the five nations, consisted of somewhere between 12,000 and 25,000 people. So that's a wide estimate. And then from the same book, from, I believe, a archaeologist named Jordan E. Kerber, I find his estimate was 22,000, so it fits in the range of our previous estimate. But the total population of northern Iroquois or Iroquoian tribes at 90,000, which would mean that you know, the five nations represented only a quarter of the Iroquois people in the north at that time. So they were small, but growing. And it's recorded by the earliest sources that the Mohawk had already established a reputation for being fierce warriors. And that the Algonquin were so scared of the Mohawk that just the sight of one of them, they would run away. So that's going to bring us to our first contact. The first time a group of the five nations comes face to face with a European power. And this is going to be, by our best estimate because we have no earlier accounts of this kind of thing happening. 1609. And you might think to yourself, oh, this is Henry Hudson. They're going to meet on the Hudson River, they're going to start trading furs, and everyone's going to be happy. Nope. The Iroquois are fairly deep with inside the North American continent. And up to this point, the Europeans have only managed to contact, in this part of North America, the Algonquins. And many of these Algonquins are enemies of the Five Nations. And so the Europeans and the Algonquins are starting to get to know each other and the Algonquins are getting the advantages of knowing the Europeans. The metal objects, the cloth objects, things like that. Those sort of trade goods begin to trickle down into the Iroquois. But very few Iroquois are friends with very few of the Algonquin, especially at this time. And so trade is very limited. So the Iroquois are starting to become behind technologically. The Algonquin are able to have the, the nice kettles to move around and cook things in. The, the raw metal that they can take and reshape into spears and into knives and to arrows and whatnot. So I'm going to take you now to Lake George in New York. Of course, it wasn't called Lake George then. But this is where this encounter first happens. And the account was written down by Samuel de Champlain. That's the European they're going to run into. So usually when you hear about this account, it is from the European point of view. I'm going to turn around, take a little bit of artistic license, and give it to you from the point of view of a young Mohawk brave, let's say. Now you as a Mohawk, it's already recorded, you're starting to get a reputation for being fierce warriors. Literally, there are tribes of Algonquin who are run away just by seeing one of your warriors. That's what the account says anyway. So when you're coming to blows with somebody, you as a young Mohawk, you already have a little bit of confidence, a little more confidence than your enemy might have. You might be going in with a little too much confidence, considering the Algonquins might have a trick or two up their sleeve this time. So that's your point of view, and I'm going to drop you down into the scene right now. You're a young Mohawk warrior on the warpath. You and 200 of your brothers are united in a war band headed to guard the northern limits of your territory. Your hair is put up in the typical Mohawk design with bear's grease. You have covered yourself in Mohawk armor made from the strongest sticks and material you can find that could deflect any arrow shot at you. You're a good shot with an arrow and you have a tomahawk with a stone blade. In your canoe as the evening sets, you notice way off in the distance, other canoes. And in those canoes are your enemy. Both sides, you come up ashore 
and immediately start chopping down trees and making walls out of wood to protect yourself from the future attacks. All while shouting at each other and trying to intimidate one another. Given your armor and a barricade of wood and your expertise with your weapon and the fact that you're a mohawk, you are the perfection of the Native American warrior. A representative from the other side comes over and says, Hey, you want to fight now? Your people gather together and they're in no rush to get this done. They're not afraid of anything. They say, it's getting dark. How about we wait? We'll do this tomorrow morning, sunrise. As night falls, you make a fire and all 200 of you dance and sing and you shout out insults at the enemy and they can hear you as you roar all 200 together. And then you can hear off into the distance they're doing the same thing back to you and they shout some mysterious thing about having a new weapon. But you aren't threatened, you figured this is one of the typical tactics, something you would shout at any enemy. You celebrate long into the night and as the fire dies down, you go to sleep knowing you're perfectly protected and there's nothing to worry about. In the morning you advance with extreme courage, you and 200 of your brothers. And then just outside of arrow range, you see something. Hidden from view, but now coming up towards the front is a creature like you've never seen before. White like a ghost, strange looking, odd looking beard, draped in this odd, smooth, shiny material, similar to those copper spirals that you would trade. But this is dark, like the color of cold, dirty water. The creature is human-like, but completely white, and the facial features are all strange and grotesque compared to faces you're used to seeing, and the faces of your enemy, there's no comparison. The creature, a manitou, spirit, whatever it is, has a long, thick stick, and he points it directly at one of your chiefs, and then the sound of thunder erupts from it, and fire blows out the end of it. Surely this must be some powerful spirit that has harnessed the power of nature itself, and with that one shot, two of your chiefs went down, dead, instantly. Their armor provided no resistance. You shoot back with your bows, but the Algonquins swarm and scream in such a loud voice it drowns out everything else. You can't breathe, the bravery leaves you, and you go fleeing through the woods along with your brothers. The strange Manitou and your enemy give chase, firing at you with arrows and that strange thunderous noise and the fire. You run until you can't anymore, until you're just so far away and so far into the woods, there's no possible way they could possibly see you. Slowly you find each other and you start to regroup and realize how many have been lost. Will the people back in your village believe you? Will this evil spirit come again? This has been the Other States of America History Podcast.